There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, here we are, episode 180-something. Yeah, right on. I don't even know which one it is. I think it's 182, something like that. Quite a few anyways. Greg, you missed last week. Last week, we had Mike Mason, Chief AI Officer on the show, Paige filled in for you. She did a great job. She did. But guess what? You guys don't look or sound alike. I'm not surprised about that at all. And it was an interesting discussion about AI and the use of AI in our world now and going forward. And I see AI in our world, Greg, in the future being in the form of maybe a chatbot when you go through... uh, turbulent times in markets, when it's driving fear, when we're surrounded by headlines that tell us how awful things are, that somebody could go to this chatbot and say, hey, chatbot, should I be concerned about the market? And then the chatbot would source some information and maybe put them at ease a little bit about what's happened, what's happening or whatever, right? I I think that that's a real tool. How far in the future do you think that is? I don't think it's that far. I think it's well, I know there's companies that are doing it right now. So I know Morningstar has a chatbot and you can literally go on and ask it questions like that. Like, what do you think the market's going to return in the next 12 months, et cetera? Okay, and we're going to hold it to the answer. Well, we're going to hold it to an answer. But I guess where I see this coming from, or the reason I'm bringing this up is that I, not a conversation, an email from somebody that I've worked with for a long time, 15 plus years. And in the email, this person, who shall remain unnamed, wrote to me that it's time for a serious conversation, that the wait and things will return to normal strategy doesn't seem to be a strategy worth pursuing because of current unprecedented events and unknowns. Given the increased cost of living, I think we need to do something different. It might be time to be more actively managing our portfolio. And then they wrote some other things. And they finished the email, lovely email, by the way, with, this is not intended to alarm you, but we've asked another financial planner to review our portfolio and offer suggestions. Listen, I think everybody should go and get a second opinion on everything they do, everything, whether it's fixing your car or fixing your computer or whatever. And I'm not scared of those results. The things that we invest in, Greg, remove idiosyncratic risk from portfolios. And idiosyncratic risk is company-specific risk. We do not believe that people are ahead of the game by having concentrated portfolios with company-specific risk in them. And why, why is that, Greg? Why, why do we do that? Well, because that concentration can result in returns that may vary very dramatically from the market itself. And therefore, you might be in a great market and you might do poorly and vice versa. But of course, what we're trying to avoid is the downside, not the upside. And, and I'm not trying to knock this person for sending this email, Greg, by the way. I think it's normal for people to feel this way right now. We're coming out of 18 or more months of higher interest rates, low returns, negative returns, really, 
in stock and bond markets. Inflation has been very high. So the cost of living has gone up dramatically. And I think that the root of this question is, am I going to be okay? Which is the root of every question. I don't mind answering that question. We've got the planning tools to do that, to say, even with this current inflationary period and interest rate hikes, we can answer those questions. What the, the question I don't like is feeling defensive about market returns because there's nothing we can do about market returns, right, Greg? Exactly right. I mean, you can choose to not be invested and then you won't have market returns, but that's not really a realistic expectation. So today we thought we'd talk a little bit about relative returns versus absolute returns and what they mean because here's the perfect example. Last year, the bond market was down 12% or so. The stock market was down around 20% or so. A balanced portfolio would have had a benchmark return of negative 16%, roughly, depending where you took the data from on the year. So if your portfolio was only down 11% and not down 16%, then you actually performed better than the benchmark. So your relative performance was better than what the benchmark was. It's just that you couldn't escape being in a negative return. Exactly. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. When we report performance, I mean, we always show investors what their actual return has been. And again, nobody likes to see an actual return that's negative. None of us. I don't like to see it. No. And as a matter of fact, our compensation is directly linked to how markets are returning. Absolutely. The only way for us to earn more is for us to manage more assets, which means the assets have to go up in value over time. But the important thing that you mentioned is relative return. And so let's just dive into that a little bit. I mean, what is relative return? I mean, relative return is the return an asset or a portfolio achieves over a period of time compared to a relevant benchmark. And the relative return is the difference between the portfolio's return and the return of the benchmark. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as alpha, which is like what has a fund manager or what has an investment achieved relative to an appropriate benchmark. That's alpha. That's the excess return. So that's relative. How did I do relative to just being in the market? So I think a way for people to think about this is you have a house and you live in Saskatoon and your friend has a house and they live in Vancouver. You both bought those houses at the same time. Your friend in Vancouver says, look how much my house is worth. It's not really relative to the house in Saskatoon. They're in different marketplaces. I mean, I know this example is a bit of a stretch, but well, it's not really a stretch at all. I mean, if you're looking at, well, how has my value of my house appreciated over time? You're going to say, oh, well, gee, in absolute, in absolute, it didn't do very well. But it may well have done extremely well if you're in Saskatoon and the real estate market has gone down. Yeah. So you have to look at it. I mean, when you're gauging performance and the performance of your investment portfolio, and that's why I think we really need to focus on relative versus absolute returns. But we'll talk about both. So uh, first of all, let's talk about how does relative return work? Well, as you mentioned, you have to compare to a benchmark. And why do you have to compare to a benchmark? Because as you mentioned, being in the market has risks. And so if the stock markets in the US, for example, let's say the market went down 30%, well, the very likelihood most of the stocks that you would own if you owned individual stocks or mutual funds that are connected to the U.S. market or even 
Canadian or international stocks, there's a reasonable chance that they would all be going in that same direction down because that's just the risk of being in the market. Markets go down. That's called systematic risk. That's systematic risk, the being in that system. As opposed to, as you pointed out, uh, idiosyncratic or specific risk. And that's the risk that's associated with being invested in a particular company or a particular sector of the market. And what you're doing then relative to being invested in the market is you're making a bet. And your bet is, well, I think by owning more of this particular company or by being in one sector, whether it's technology or oil and gas or healthcare, whatever, I'm going to make a bet that that sector is going to do better than the market as a whole. And you might be right, you might be wrong. But there's every possibility that you could be wrong and your sector or your specific investment could go down even when the rest of the market is doing just fine. Well, I've got a good example of that, actually, going back to the global financial crisis. Remember in 2007, 2008, remember how crappy things were back then? I do remember that. And gold had a big run up as a result of a lot of volatility in the stock and bond markets. Because in case anybody's forgotten, the stock market went down 50% in that period. 50. And bonds went down roughly 20% in that period. At that time, the, at the peak of the volatility, a lot of people wanted to own things like gold. So the price of gold went up. The price of Barrick Gold, a gold producer, the stock went down. It didn't go up. That is an example of idiosyncratic or company-specific risk. In theory, you would think that the, one of the world's largest gold-producing companies' stock would go up when the price of the commodity it produces goes up, but it didn't. So there's risk by being, just by being invested in the market, and there's risk that can be diversified away by the risk of making a bet on an individual stock sector or part of the market. So let's get back to relative return. It's important because it provides a way to actually measure the performance of managed funds, okay? So anybody who chooses to, in, to do anything other than buy index funds, they're going to be benchmarked against those index funds. And you would hope over time that there would be a benefit to doing that. Otherwise, we would all only own index funds. And so the relative performance or the relative return is a way to gauge how well that investment has done. And have you, the key thing there being is that there's going to be a cost to being in a fund that's actively managed. And have you been able to recoup the cost and still do at least as well or better than your benchmark? So when you're trying to review the performance of an investment or an investment fund or an investment fund manager, you can use that relative return to understand how the investments are performing relative to having just been invested in the index as a whole. Similar to what we used to, we talked about alpha and we've talked about that in previous podcasts. The relative return is the difference between the investment return and the return of the benchmark. And there's lots of factors that you need to consider when using relative return. Okay, so you want to make sure that you're, first of all, comparing to the right benchmark. You want to make sure that you're comparing to the right benchmark over the right period of time. So if you're invested in an actively managed fund, it could be that you underperform the benchmark for some reasonably short periods of time. But over the longer period, say five years plus, you want to know that you're doing everything you can. So there's some considerations. So what can factor into relative return? Well, certainly things like costs 
And those would include things like transaction costs or mutual fund fees, management expense ratios, things like that. Taxes? Taxes, absolutely. You know, these can all detract from the performance of your investment portfolio. Wait, though, those are tangible costs. What about the intangible cost of opportunity cost? So that is another cost that if you choose to not be invested and then the market goes up, you've missed out. Exactly. So when you're looking at relative returns, you do want to take into consideration, well, gee, what are the fees and the transaction costs and the tax implications? Because those will all have an impact on your relative performance. And it's one of the reasons why when we look for investments for our clients, we try to make sure that we're using funds with as low fees as possible. You know, funds that minimize transactions and therefore minimize taxation, minimize distributions, for example. So all of these are important and can factor into relative returns. There's a big opportunity there. Lots of people look at MER of funds, like the management expense ratio. How much does it cost for me to have that fund? But it doesn't necessarily, they don't necessarily know the trade expense ratio of the fund. As you say, if it's a fund that doesn't turn over its positions very much, their trade expense ratio would be low. If it turns it over a lot, it'd be high. And then the other one that I just picked up on that you pointed out was the tax implications of, let's say you had a portfolio of U.S. stocks and you're actively trading this portfolio of U.S. stocks on your own and you're triggering, let's say you you were a really good stock picker. And you, you were just triggering capital gains all the time. There's a huge structural difference. If you had that in a U.S. mutual fund, you would not be triggering the capital gains tax to yourself all the time. That's right. And the other thing which we've talked about is, you know, there are a number of mutual funds. If you were to compare U.S. mutual funds or something like that, some funds can have turnover of over 50% in their portfolio. So their trade expense ratio is going to be high. So they're going to have high trade expense ratios. And at the end of the year, even though it doesn't show up on the return profile, there's going to be more taxes to pay because those capital gains are being triggered inside the fund and those capital gains get distributed to the fund unit holders. And so uh, absolutely, there's a number of different things that can impact your real performance. But again, in order to actually know how you're doing and when people ask us, how are we doing? As you say, that what they're really asking is, am I going to be okay? And it's a very logical question to ask when markets are going down. And markets do go down. We know that. We know that there's bear markets on average once every four to five years. There's corrections of 10% or more every year, year to year and a half. But part of this, though, is there's a misunderstanding. This particular person says, I think we need to do something different. We need to be more active. And that implies that what we're doing right now isn't the right strategy, which I disagree with. Well, listen, I want to talk about one more thing and then we'll talk about absolute return. But I do want to talk about when we're measuring performance, you always want to make sure you're looking at total return. It's easy enough if you looked at a TSX index, for example, and you look at its price return, the return for a year might be 5%, but its total return, which is the return of the actual prices of all the stocks that trade in that index, plus any dividends that they've paid out and been reinvested. Uh, The total return actually is a combination of the price return plus any dividends or income received. And so as we're looking at performance, we also do want to make sure that we're looking at total 
performance or total return. What people take to the bank is absolute returns. And I think we can all agree that we all want positive, good, absolute returns. I mean, who wouldn't if you said, look, do you want to have your portfolio float with the market returns or would you prefer to have, let's just say, a nice 6 to 8% a year? We would all want to have a positive return regardless of what the market is doing. Unfortunately, it's just not that easy to achieve. Well, but it is. How so? If you had just invested in the S&P 500 for the last 70 years, you would have gotten 8% on average per year for 70 years. But the difference is that it's never 8% in any given year. That's exactly right. You know, and it's one of those things, though. So when people want to look at returns and they fall back on absolute returns, it's a very understandable thing that people will say, look, you know, I know, big deal, the market went down 20 and I only went down 10. I still went down 10. And as I said, we all want that positive return. But how can you achieve that? And the answer is, well, the only way you can achieve that, there's a couple of ways you could try to achieve it. One way would be to have absolutely perfect timing. So you'd know that, okay, the stocks are going to go down, and so I should get out of my stocks now. And, oh, by the way, interest rates are going to go so high that GICs will be yielding over 5%, so I should sit on my cash. And then as soon as GICs hit 5%, I should start buying them uh, and then hope that my GICs mature in time for the next bull market in stocks. So certainly if you had perfect timing, that would, that would be one way to get a positive absolute return. And in fact, if you were to do that, we'd all agree that would be a, an ideal situation, but you know that it can't be achieved because it's dependent on knowing exactly what's going to happen. As Yogi Berra would say, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Speaking of Yogi Berra, I do want to talk about Yogi Berra because I was watching Netflix the other day. I think it was Netflix. And there's actually a movie about Yogi Berra that was made by his granddaughter. And his granddaughter... Is her name Yogi as well? Lindsay, I believe. Anyway, but she made this because she was ticked off because back in 2015, she was watching the All-Star Game with her grandfather, Yogi Berra. This is, he was still alive just shortly before his death. And they brought out on this particular day the four greatest living baseball players. And they included people like uh, Hank Aaron, I think, and Sandy Koufax and, and a couple others. And by the way, you know I'm not a huge baseball fan. You don't even like baseball. Yeah, I don't mind it, but it's not something that I would go out of my way to. I like hot dogs. But anyway, so I was watching this, and it turns out that Yogi Berra won 10 World Series championships, more than anyone else in history, was named American League's Most Valuable Player three times, an 18-time All-Star, inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame during his first year on the ballot. And so the upshot of this whole movie-slash-documentary is that he was possibly the most underappreciated baseball player of all time. And in fact, his 10 World Series rings are two more than the amount the other four guys who were honored in 2015 have combined. But the reason why I like Yogi Berra so much is because he has great sayings that everybody uses all the time, like the one I just said, or it ain't over till it's over. That's Yogi Berra? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And when you come to a fork in the road, take it. That kind of thing. Okay, so what does this have to do with our discussion That was a modest deviation from the main point of our discussion. We're talking about absolute returns. So absolute returns, you can have good absolute returns if you're able to time the market perfectly. There are various times when you might be able to give yourself 
what you might consider reasonable absolute returns today by things like taking advantage of interest rates. Like today, for example, you could buy a five-year GIC with over 5% per year. And today, given what's happened in the most recent period in the market, a person might say, oh my God, 5% guaranteed for the next five years? Count me in. How about this though? You can buy a two-year duration bond fund with a yield of 7.5%. Yes, you can. But the other thing is, and that might be attractive, except it has market volatility. The problem though with saying, okay, well, I'm going to lock into five-year GIC at 5% right now, is that we don't know in a year or two, the stock market could well return 10 or 12%. A 60-40 portfolio or a well-diversified balanced portfolio may do more than 5%. We just don't know. But by locking in at today's rates of 5% for five years, you're saying, okay, well, I'm willing to be okay with taking 5% even if the real returns of a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds is 8%. And so there you're saying, okay, I'm okay with that absolute return. But I think most people would not be okay with it if the absolute return is lower than the return they could earn on a relative basis by benchmarking to the appropriate index or whatever. I would say, though, anybody that's considering this 5%, five-year GIC scenario needs to be reminded that the 60-40 portfolio that constantly gets pressed as to whether or not it's dead or alive, over the last 30 years, on average, has returned 7.8% per year. So yeah, you can lock in this 5% GIC and you can guarantee your return for the next five years. But then on a relative basis, you're actually behind. I want to talk about one more thing when it comes to absolute returns, because we've talked about being perfectly precise in making predictions about the future, so that may not happen. And then the other thing that you hear a lot of during times when stock markets and bond markets are down, as they are now, uh, or as they have been last year, are hedge funds. Because hedge funds claim to be absolute return funds. What that means is they're saying, look, the performance of our fund is not dependent on the direction of stocks or bonds. Our returns are totally independent of stocks and bonds. And therefore, you should buy hedge funds because they diversify your portfolio against the risk that's inherent in stocks and bonds. The problem is, is that hedge funds are just an alternative type of investment. And they may, in fact, in many cases, be investing in stocks and bonds just the way everyday investors are, but they might be doing it using strategies such as long short strategies where they own certain stocks and then they short other stocks. And so the overall exposure to the market might be zero, but they've got to be short the right stocks and be long the right stocks in order for that to work. And so there's a variety of different hedge fund strategies, but they're not guaranteed of getting a good positive return. There's just a chance that they may get a positive return in a year when stocks and bonds get a negative return. Offsetting that, in most cases, are exceedingly high fees. I was just going to say they do guarantee a return. They guarantee a 2 plus 20% return to themselves. Oh, that's right. So if you're willing to pay 2% annual management fees and 20% of the profits when the hedge fund is making money relative, and the hedge funds, by the way, they look at their returns relative to a benchmark as well. Their benchmark is cash. Yeah. And so all they need to do is beat the return on cash and they get to keep 20% of the profits. In summary, absolute returns are great. We all want positive absolute returns, 
but very difficult to achieve if we want to have exposure to stocks and bonds, which, as you say, even diversified 60-40 portfolios over the last many, many decades have resulted in really good returns over the long run. And once again, the secret is staying in as opposed to getting out and feeling good about your investment. Because if you show good relative returns, if your portfolio is going down less than the market, then your portfolio has saved you money. You know, markets can't go up all the time, but if you can do as well as the markets when they're going up and do better than the markets when they're going down, you've really achieved some pretty great success there. Well, I think that's the most frustrating part I feel about these types of conversations. There's this idea that because it's been a negative return environment for a few years that we need to change our strategy. And actually, that's just not true. The strategy remains whole. What it requires is patience, perseverance, trust. It requires looking back at previous cycles to see what would have happened if you had changed your strategy mid-cycle. Because you say that timing markets is really hard to do and not anybody can really do it. I'd actually argue that's not always true, that there are people that time markets perfectly and that they sell out at the bottom and because they're scared. And then they can't get back in because it's then the market turns around and it's getting too expensive. We unfortunately have watched that play out in the past. And again, as we've said many times, it is human nature. We definitely understand when people feel concern and stress when they see their portfolio going down. And again, you and I and, and everyone we work with has exactly the same emotion. Nobody likes to see the markets go down. But when you can accept the fact that it's not different this time, the specific things going on in the world maybe are unprecedented for us. We've just gone through an unprecedented pandemic a few years ago, but it wasn't unprecedented to everybody. There were people alive that sort of went through the 1918 flu pandemic, Spanish flu, world wars, many people alive today through the Second World War, lived through the Korean War, the Vietnam War, lots of regional conflicts, 9-11. And the market may respond to some of these things in the short term, but in the long term, economies survive and continue to grow. So it feels different this time, but it likely isn't. It's what we say every time. The headline might be different, but the principles remain the same. So I guess we should just wrap it up. Yeah, I think closing comments. Look at relative performance because it is important. Absolute return is important because that's what's going to keep you on track towards your goals. But you can't outguess the market. And so you have to trust in the market and let things play out over time. Yeah, and sorry, one last comment I'll make on that is that if the stock market is down dramatically, which it's not right now, by the way, the last couple of weeks have been pretty good. But if it's down dramatically like it was in 2022, more than likely your portfolio will be down. And if the stock market is up, more than likely your portfolio will be up as long as you're well diversified. So it shouldn't come as a big shocker. And not making a change is still a decision. And it's the right decision. So that's me on my soapbox, Greg. Well, that's an excellent place to finish up on the, so on the soapbox. All right. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners. Please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.
The CIBC logo and CIBC private wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC private wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC private wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.